Well, good morning, Randolph Street family, and thank you for joining us this morning. We have prayed for you this week and trust that in your walk with the Lord these past few days, you have sought to honor him, that you are living lives uh, to the praise of his glory. And now we gather on this Lord's Day to worship with one another, even though you are in your homes and we are in this auditorium alone uh, I was hopeful that we would not be back in this particular spot, but here we are. Uh, we mentioned this in our email we sent to you a few days ago due to the heightened spread of COVID in our community, uh, among some of our families here at Randolph Street, among churches throughout our area. After consulting with medical professionals here within our church, we decided it would be best uh, to suspend our in-person gathering for at least one week. And uh, we're praying that we will return together in this space uh, very soon. I mentioned in my email to you, these last couple of Sundays have felt like pre-COVID days uh, for me personally. As we've gathered in this room, in spite of masks, your singing, your engagement with me while I was preaching last Sunday especially, uh, it, it reminded me of those days before COVID, and we are anxious to return to those days. Uh, just a word of thanks to those in our church who are in the medical profession right now. Uh, one, just as a church family, to be praying for those who are serving our communities right now. We have a number of nurses and physicians within our church membership uh, that are under much stress and anxiety as uh, we walk through this most unusual season. So first, just thank God for those within our church family who are serving our community. But two, I'm grateful that I had a variety of men and women this past week that I could consult with. Uh, men and women who know our church, know how we worship, how we gather. Uh, they're in our communities. They know how COVID is affecting our communities. They're in the hospital. They see firsthand. Uh, what we are battling, and uh, it, it was unanimous uh, among those that I spoke with this past week that it would be wise for us to suspend in-person gatherings. So I'm just deeply grateful we have those gifted men and women within our fellowship. I've heard these past few days of a number of our senior saints getting uh, the vaccine. Uh, we uh, have been warned there might be a charismatic moment when some of these senior saints return to our gathering. I'm primarily speaking, speaking of Joyce Ashworth and, and uh, Ann Jordan, but uh, we are so excited uh, for the Lord's provision. We look forward to your return here in this space with us. And then just from my little corner of the world as your, one of your pastors here, uh, this may not be a popular opinion, but I'm, I'm deeply grateful for how our local government and how their response to COVID has taken place within uh, our communities. Uh, it is flawed, as it would be if any of us were leading in this particular effort. We all have flawed thoughts and walking through this unique moment of our history. But with that said, they have been over backwards for churches. I think they recognize the importance of what we do, or at least they want our vote, one or the two. Uh, but they've been kind and gracious to us, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. And just to encourage you as our members to pray for our government leaders as we continue to walk through these days, to lift them up before the Lord, asking for wisdom for them um, and for his blessings as they lead us through this time of 
our history. A couple of announcements just quickly to throw before you, a few reminders. Our upcoming Ladies Bible Study, uh, you, you can check your church email from last week. I'm sure it'll be out again this week uh, to sign up for that soon. It begins at the end of this month, uh, the book of Proverbs. So please make sure you uh, sign up uh, at the right time. If you have questions, you can email Ginger. Her email address has been in the church bulletin. Likewise, you're only a few days behind if you have not started your 2021 Bible reading plan. Uh, let me encourage you to catch up. Uh, not that difficult right now, so jump in. Uh, pick a plan, whatever plan that is. Maybe you read through the entire Bible this year. Maybe you take the next two years to read through the entire Bible, but make sure you jump in soon and uh, let the Word of God immerse your soul and your heart and your mind, especially in this particular season we find ourselves in as a country. Uh, jump into that. Hopefully you got to see the Randolph Street Kids Catechism time this morning. Uh, if you haven't tuned in for those 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings, make sure you do so. It's only about 10 minutes. Uh, but with that said, even though it's a kid's catechism, uh, these are truths that you and I as adults should be planting in our hearts uh, to shape and affect our lives. So uh, hopefully you can find that helpful uh, on your own time. Well, you're at home. We're here. I think we need to take just a moment to lift our voices up to the Lord, asking him to do that work that only he can do, whether you are in this space or in your homes. So join with me as I pray for our church family this morning. Well, Father, this is the Lord's day. You have graciously, mercifully set this time aside for us to gather as a church. And now we are in this unique season once again in which we are separated on the Lord's day. But I ask, Father, that you, even in light of the separation, accomplish your purposes in your people at Randolph Street this morning. So I pray for our families that are gathered in their homes today, kids and our senior saints and singles and married couples. Lord, that you would use these moments, these holy moments together to strengthen your people in the faith. Let us rehearse in song and in your word this morning all that you have accomplished for us in Christ. And let us be in awe, grateful awe, at your mercy and your grace you have shown us. Lord, strengthen your people this morning. This is a season in which the adversary would love to divide and lead astray. Oh God, in these hours and in these days, strengthen your people with a deep inner resolve to live their lives to the praise of your glory. Father, if there are any unbelievers joining us online today, would you be pleased through the preaching of your word, through the singing of the gospel this morning, to open their eyes and draw their hearts to Christ in faith. So, Lord, again, we look to you. We thank you for the technology that we can implement on this Lord's Day. Bless now your people as we worship you together. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. For our call to worship this morning, I will be reading from Psalm chapter 2. So together now, let us hear the word of our Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away from their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.
Julia, appreciate that very much. What a great message that is to worship the holy God, him and him alone. I trust that you're joining with us in singing. We do not have our worship team here today, but we're providing slides as Greg plays. Uh, I know I was singing just a few moments ago, and I trust that you are singing at home. If you didn't on that first one, please join as we have some other songs throughout our worship gathering this morning. 
I'm going to be reading from the New Testament, from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the introduction of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, some of the most glorious, beautiful words in all of Scripture. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that you are here present with us, that you are with our families in their homes as they worship you. Father, I pray that your name is being exalted in homes throughout this valley. Lord, that in some ways is a glorious thought in my mind. I pray that moms and dads and children, singles, older people, whomever it might be, Oh God, that we are uniting our hearts together as we worship you, our holy God. I would ask, Lord, that you would bless our families, continue to give them wisdom through these days. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow anything to break the unity that we enjoy here, that we enjoy week after week as we come together. And even now as we worship apart, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be centered on that which is vital to the faith, that which draws us together, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious truths of the gospel, the mission that you have given us as a people to take your word throughout our communities and around the world. I pray, Father, for the many churches that are worshiping you throughout our region, and I ask, O oh God, your blessing upon them. I pray for our missionaries around the world, Lord, as they take the, the gospel in East Asia and Africa and various places. I pray particularly for the Millers as they begin their training to go to Ghana uh, to take the word there. I pray, Father, for those in our church family that are battling with very serious uh, diseases and illnesses. I pray for little Carson again today. Pray for the Goodman family, the Gleason family, the Underwoods. Lord, each of these families, as they battle these things in their own heart, might they find rest in you? Might they find peace for their soul? Might they find encouragement from your word? I pray that our church family would continue to support them in every way possible. I ask, Lord, for Debbie and for Terry, for Debbie as she continues to engage with the doctors and prepares for an upcoming surgery. Thank you that her radiation treatments have been successful. I pray also for Lori that you would continue to help her as she engages in therapy. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help these folks. We thank you for your kind, kind grace in their lives. I pray for Julie and Samuel today. Lord, 
our hearts as a church body continue to grieve over the loss of our dear brother. I pray for this family, Lord, that you would give wisdom and grace and strength. Help us as a church family to reach out and minister to their needs. I would pray for Pastor Jason today as we walk back into Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Father, such relevant words for us today. The importance of unity, that which drives unity, the humility that comes only through a work of the Spirit in our hearts. And so, God, I pray for him as he brings forth the word to us. Lord, help us as a family of believers, help us as a family of Randolph Street to continue to worship you in a way that would honor and please you, Lord, lifting up our voices to exalt you, our only great and holy God. Amen. If you would take your copy of God's Word with me and open to Philippians chapter 2 for the reading of our sermon text this morning. We will be reading really what is a central passage in this particular letter to this local church that Paul so deeply loved. Philippians chapter 2, I'll be reading verse 1 through verse number 11. Our focus this morning is on the first four verses alone. So together... Let us hear the word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that is our text this morning. Let us ask God to work in our hearts now for this time. Well, Father, again, this is one of those passages we are asking you to do a good and holy work in our hearts. Light of our time, this text is so appropriate. So, Holy Spirit, do that holy, holy work in us now. I ask that in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Naked come 
to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace foul I to the fountain fly wash me Savior or I die as I draw this fleeting breath when my eyes shall close in death as I soar to worlds unknown see thee on thy judgment throne rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in Thank you to Sean and Ta and Julie and Greg for ministering to us this morning. We had sought to reduce our worship team as much as possible uh, in order to uh, prevent having a larger group in our auditorium together this morning, but I'm so grateful for uh, those we've asked to serve today and how they have so challenged us with truth and song. I trust that you have been strengthened as you have joined us at home today. Well, with your Bibles open, pen, notebook, everything in place you need to rightly interact with the Word of God this morning. For those of you who've been at Randolph Street for any amount of time of my 13 years of ministry here, you know that I'm not a current events type preacher. As a matter of fact, I probably ignore as well as I can most current events because we believe here that the purpose of the preacher and the goal of the preacher is not to provide you commentary on current events. The goal of the preacher at Randolph Street is summarized by the Puritan Cotton Mather when he wrote... The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. So anytime a preacher walks behind this sacred desk, the goal is not to inform about current events as much as to stand before you and to open the word of God. And as Mather states so well, to restore the throne and dominion of God into our weak, needy hearts. So that's been our purpose. And that's always been our purpose here from the pulpit of Randolph Street. Now, with that said, because of the text I'm preaching this morning, I, I want to make a brief comment about some of our current culture. And you're going to see how this fits in just a moment. 
often what characterizes our public discourse and our treatment of others in 2021 America is attitudes of arrogance and hateful and divisive language. We have seen that so clearly. Both sides, or however many sides there might be out there. And let me be clear, and this text is going to push this right toward us today. Let me be clear, that is not the way of Christ. While some out there may be calling Christians to protest and to fight and to obstruct and to take up arms, Jesus is calling us to be a peacemaker, to be humble, to consider and to prefer others above ourselves. This text is going to put that right in front of us. It's going, to, it's going to develop this clear contrast between what we see in our world today and what Christ is calling us to as Christians. You want to glorify God in 2021 America? Be a peacemaker. Be humble. Prefer others above yourself. Love your enemies in words and in deeds. I mean, it is Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers. You want to glorify God in 2021, America? Hear the call of Christ upon our lives. Whether it be in social media, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Be a peacemaker. Be humble, meek, and gentle. Seek to prefer others above yourself. That may not get you many likes or retweeted. It may not get you promoted or noticed. But my brothers and sisters, when we embrace that kind of life, we will glorify God. We live in a time when it's almost virtuous to share our opinion about everything. Right? If, if we feel it, we say it. I mean, it's almost... An American right, regardless of how it affects others. It seems some take joy and seemingly find their meaning in life to agitate and to push and to stir up strife and contention. Let me be clear. This text is going to prove this out. That is not the way of Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, here's your outline. We're going to look at four parts of this text. First, we're, we're going to talk about the advent and sanctification. Or, or maybe you could retitle that a little bit and say the advent and church membership. And I'm going to connect all that together here in just a few moments out of our text. Secondly, we're going to look at Paul's heart kind of the exhortation of this text, his appeal to these Philippian believers. Thirdly, we're going to see, out of that exhortation, we're going to see four kind of common realities, shared realities, that defines this local church that he writes to and really defines us here at Randolph Street. 
Fourth, we're going to look at what a Christ-like church culture looks like. And then I'm going to end the morning by reading, rereading, if you will, after I walk through these first four verses. I'm going to end the morning by rereading verses 5 through 8 to help us connect all of this together. And here's your challenge this morning as we look at this text. As I'm preaching, here, here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't think of others. I know that's kind of contrary to the whole text here. But as I'm preaching this morning, let's ask the Spirit of God to probe our own hearts, to take responsibility for our own actions, our own words, our own way of life. Let us ask the Spirit of God to open our eyes to see how we are called to live as Christians. And if needed, and my guess it is for all of us, if needed, let us quickly confess and forsake those sins. And let us ask God to establish Christ-like patterns in our life. Patterns that will color our language and our interaction with others around us, be they believers or unbelievers. Okay, let's, let's move into this. This first point is not in verses 1 through 4. It's kind of the whole of the text, the advent and sanctification, or the advent and church membership. So we just finished Advent season here at Randolph Street, walking through four particular weeks leading us up to Christmas Day. We do this on a yearly basis here. It's become a part of our tradition, our liturgical calendar, if you will, as we prepare in our hearts and minds for this most significant season for us as a church as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Often we think about the birth of Christ, and rightly so, we, we see theological implications, right? We, we talk a lot about maybe the deity of Christ or the incarnation and the, the humanity of Christ, or maybe out of that we leap over to the cross, which, again, is right thinking and why it was necessary for Jesus to be born and to take up on himself human form. When we think about the incarnation, there are all kinds of theological implications, but in Paul's mind, and what should be in our minds, is there are ethical implications to the incarnation of Christ likewise. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus should not only shape what we believe and how we believe, but it should likewise shape how we live. And that's kind of the heart of this text. That's why I read all the way through verse number 11. This text that is before us this morning revolves around the unity of the church. I mean, if you go back, if you let your eyes linger back to verse number 27 of chapter 1, we preach this, I guess, pre or right at the beginning of Advent season. Paul wrote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You remember, we walk through that and that high calling that Paul places upon us. But then he tells us why. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving sod by sod for the faith of the gospel. This is a church who would walk through much suffering and much adversity. And Paul longs for this church to experience unity in the midst of that suffering. 
And when Paul thinks about unity of the church, when Paul thinks about relationships in the context of the church, Paul immediately brings to bear upon this church the example, the life, the humility of Christ. In other words, when Paul thinks of the incarnation, when he thinks of the life of Christ, he doesn't see simply theological implications for us, and he does see that, but that's not all that Paul sees. Paul looks at Jesus, Paul looks at the incarnation, he looks at the humility expressed in Christ, and he pushes that on us as an example. An example of how we live life, an example of how we conduct ourselves among others around us, how we are to pursue relationships in the context of the church, but I would argue even beyond that. I think it's easy for us, again, to just move through the Advent season and to rejoice over the clear and outstanding theological implications of the Incarnation and to miss what Paul is going to teach us in Philippians chapter 2. Let your eyes linger down to verse number 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to set forth the mind of Christ for us. The Advent informs our sanctification. The Advent informs our relationship with others, our pursuit of biblical church membership. When we celebrate the Advent, what should spawn from our hearts is, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and likewise, I want to live as Jesus. Look down at verse number two, if you would. Paul's longing for the unity of the church. Paul's appeal to them. I'm going to skip verse one for just a moment. Paul's heart here is clear as we saw in verse number 27 of chapter 1 he writes complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind notice Paul's life here it's kind of bound up in this church and that, that was Paul he bore this love for the churches, and out of that, it, it really produced in Paul, he would speak of this as these anxieties and these, these struggles in his own heart as he looked up on the churches. But here, notice Paul's mind in his life. Complete my joy. There's a connectedness in Paul here and his joy and our unity. Paul, Paul loved the church that much. This was crucial to Paul's mind. And notice his command here for this church, his exhortation. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be of full accord. Be of one mind. Now, this does not mean that these Christians were called down to live all of their lives alike, to have everything in common. This doesn't mean that he's pressing them to have lifestyles and personal preferences that are completely aligned with one another. Paul's heart here for this church is that they would be so shaped by the gospel that they would find in their walk on this earth deep, profound unity in Christ. 
a unity that was built not on their personal preferences, but a unity that was built up on their Savior and up on the gospel. And out of that unity, I think these, this language that Paul uses, have the same mind, the same love, be of one accord, of one mind. Out of that kind of unity, then, they would find harmony and edification that they would share together as a local church as they lived in the experience of the gospel. Again, this church was suffering. If you go back to verse number 29 of chapter 1, Paul notes it has been granted to them for the sake of Christ that they not should believe, but they should suffer for his sake. And then he, he says in verse number 30, they've been engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I, I still have. Paul had experiences of trials and tribulations, and he notes in verse 29 and 30, these Philippian believers were walking into that same struggle, and out of that, Paul's heart for them is that they would find this mutual unity and edification and harmony among them, that they would experience the gospel together. It's Paul's heart for the Philippian church. That's God's heart for our church. in maybe some of the most divisive days of which any of you have ever lived. God calls us here at Randolph Street to a clear expression of unity and harmony, to be of one mind and full accord in Christ. I think inherent within verse number two, Paul's heart for the church, is, his exhortation for the church is for us to embrace this now. Right, to embrace this and recognize our role in this and to be actively engaged in pursuing these things that Paul sets for us as a church. Paul's going to ground this exhortation in four shared realities. Now look back at verse number one, if you would, chapter two. He writes, If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy. Now then, he exhorts them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. These, these four clauses are, are, are designed in verse number one to remind them of their unity. So, so before he exhorts them, verse number two, before he pleads with them, he's going to stand them on some theological ground. Right? Out of this shared reality now comes this exhortation of unity. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on Philippians, writes these four, about these four clauses in verse number one. These are supernatural, objective realities that have already occurred in their own experience. And they, they share this. They, this is a common experience among the Philippian church. Let's look at those four clauses for a moment. Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Paul's going to remind the Philippians here of the common comfort and encouragement they've received from their union with Christ. I think that's what he's going after here. This is, this is a shared experience. Right, this, is, this is one of the theological markers of the entire New Testament, if you will. This incredible blessing 
that we experience together as Christians, all of us are positionally now in Christ. And because of that position, we have all experienced this encouragement or this comfort that flows from this positional reality into our lives. And Paul uses that. He thinks of that theological reality, and he presses that in us and says, hey, this is our motivating factor for us to be united, to stand together in this common faith. We have all experienced this comfort, this encouragement in the midst of our sufferings in Christ. He says, if there is any comfort of love, I think here Paul is just indicating that they have received comfort from God's love for them in Christ. This is a tangible, present experience among all believers. We know what it is to be comforted by God and his love toward us in Christ. We've tasted of that. We've experienced that. That's part of what we do here every Lord's Day. We, we often say it like this. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we just rehearse. We rehearse God's love for us in Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, your common experience together is that you've received comfort from that love that God has shown us in Christ. All of us have experienced that. Thirdly, Paul writes, if there's any participation in the Spirit... Again, together, this Philippian church and us likewise here at Randolph Street, we've experienced the theological reality of the presence and empowering work of the Spirit of God in us. This is a shared experience. We are in Christ. We've experienced the love of God toward us in Christ. And now we have this common reality that each of us experience the present empowering work of the Spirit in us. Finally, if there's any affection and sympathy, Paul is just reminding them here of their love and care for one another. This idea of sympathy speaks of their caring for someone who is hurting, someone who is walking through deep and profound struggles, and they have shared that together as a church. In other words, as they've walked through adversity, they have loved one another, and Paul's reminding them of this reality. So let me summarize those four clauses, if I could, just quickly. Paul's reminding these Christians of their common status in Christ. He's reminding them of a love they've experienced from God, He's reminding them of the common possession and working of God's Spirit in them. And he's reminding them of their previous affection and love for one another. That's the ground now. This, this theological ground, if you will, that Paul stands them on and says, okay, out of that, he exhorts them and he appeals to them to love one another, to be of one mind. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, writes, The appeal is for their unity and love toward one another, based on their shared comfort and love that has its origins in God and found ex historical expression in Christ and the Spirit and has been shared mutually by them and for one another. And with that, Paul appeals to them and exhorts them. That's helpful for us as a church, right? I mean, it's one thing for us to say, hey, 
Let's be of the same mind. Let's be of one accord. Let, let's, let's find unity. But Paul here grounds that unity. And he reminds them, hey, this common experience each of you have as believers in Christ. Now, in light of that, be of the same mind. Brothers and sisters, what unites us in the gospel is far more significant than what divides us in our personal preferences or desires. Our, our union together, our one-anotheredness is not grounded in the fact that we are all alike here at Randolph Street, and God forbid that we would all be alike here. But our unity is grounded in our common experience of the gospel of God as he has shown his love toward us in Christ and poured his spirit out upon us. Now, look at verse number three. This is, this is a difficult part of the text. This is what I've entitled this Christ-like culture, church culture. He says in verse number three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The New Living Translation says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. All right, so let, let's acknowledge why Paul is doing this. First of all, Paul sees these realities as hindering unity. Otherwise, he would not even address this. These are traits, some of them, in verse 3 and verse 4. These are traits can undermine this passionate plea that Paul puts before the Philippian church. But I also think Paul recognizes these are common realities of our hearts. Living in a fallen world, not yet fully redeemed, living in these fallen bodies, these are things that can press up on our hearts when it comes to relationships and how we interact with others. So Paul attacks, if you look at verse number three, selfish ambition. This is a word he used back in verse number 17 of chapter one when he spoke of those who were preaching Christ in order to further his chains. And Paul's going to address that issue here. Selfish ambition is this self-centered energy and drive when we are consumed with ourselves, our likes, our wants. Again, it, it, it's natural, to, it's a natural craving of the fallen heart. We think too highly of ourselves and we want glory that is undeserved. The, the world, if you will, revolves around me. And Paul, Paul's going, you're going to attack that and go after that. Is, that is a mindset that hinders the unity of the body of Christ. Moises Silva writes, the true obstacle in this text of unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion. That's not the issue. But of self-centeredness. And I think that's what Paul's doing. He's addressing an attitude that opposes the gospel, an attitude that is not becoming of the gospel, or to put it in Philippian-type language, an attitude that is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
this selfish ambition, or the other word he tags in here with it, conceit. A person that is puffed up. That's kind of the idea that flows from that particular word. A person who always thinks they are right. Those who often disregard others. This conceit then is at the expense of their brothers and sisters. Paul sees this as an attitude that is unbecoming of Christ. Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Simple text, profound truth. The challenge of all of our hearts, no one's excluded on this. To not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Paul's mind, selfish ambition, conceit, prod, undermine the very unity of the church. This past week, and I was studying, just chasing some of these words around the New Testament, I came across James chapter 3 and found this so refreshing to my soul. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes these words, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Now listen to how James sees this. This selfish ambition, conceit, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, you, you hear this from James now, the half-brother of Jesus, as he looks up on this idea of selfish ambition, like Paul does in Philippians, and he identifies this is, this is earthly. This is unspiritual. This is demonic. In other words, this should not be true of Christians. What should be true of Christians in James' mind, and I think it's because he listened to his half-brother, Jesus, what should be true of Christians is to have a heart that is peaceable and gentle and open to reason, a heart that is full of mercy and a heart that seeks peace. Selfish ambition, pride, and conceit are anti-gospel attitudes. Humility, humility, on the other hand, is an attitude that is worthy of the gospel. Randolph Street, let's not just use words here. This is where, in the moment, in the preaching of the word, we want to ask God to probe our own hearts, to examine our hearts through his Holy Spirit, and we want to respond well to that. Paul here ultimately is calling this church in Philippians chapter 2. Look back at verse number 3. He's calling them to humility. 
Do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is an attitude that is worthy of the gospel. It is a Christ-centered, centered virtue. It's core to our faith. If you remember in our study of the Beatitudes, when you're reading the Beatitudes, it is what Jesus puts first and foremost above all other ethics of the kingdom, that we would be poor in spirit. It's the primary attitude of the heart of those who follow Christ. Now let's, let's do a little definition work here to make sure we have this right. Humility is not false modesty. So what Paul's calling us to in verse number three is not false modesty or even this self-seeking self-denial. I think we can often do that when we think about humility. Humility ultimately is born out of a true understanding of the gospel and of grace. Humility is not attained when we compare ourselves to others. True humility is attained when we understand God, and in light of understanding God, we see ourselves. John Calvin in the Institutes would write, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So humility is not attained by comparing ourselves with others around us. Humility is often attained, ultimately attained through understanding God and who God is and in light of that, who we are as sinners. It's what makes us humble. And God loves humility. Do you? As I've watched these last few months unravel and as you've seen them, be it TV or social media, whatever venue, humility is not a virtue of our world. But humility glorifies God. Listen to these texts. There's three significant texts in the Old and New Testament that, that reminds us of how God values humility. Micah 6. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what God requires of you. James, the, again, the half-brother of Jesus, verse 6 of chapter 4. Speaking of God, he gives more grace. Therefore, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Brothers and sisters, this is an attitude of grace that we must cultivate in our hearts. It is not natural to us. It does not come easy to us. But this is a, an attitude of grace we must cultivate this is one of the reasons we encourage you to read the scriptures. I mean, this year, your Bible reading plan, it, it's not just an opportunity to check off something to say, look at me and look what I accomplished. When you read the word, it forms your mind to think rightly about God. 
And in light of that, it causes you to think rightly about yourself. And as Calvin reminded us in the Institutes, that's the ground by which humility grows in our lives. So we read the scriptures so that God would work in us these traits that he so deeply values in our hearts. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And notice with me here, the humility that Paul is focused on creates this clear outward focus. Look at what he says. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So humility is something that is born within us by the grace of God, but it should flow out of us and affect others that are around us. Humility doesn't end with us. It's not just an inward disposition, but it, it creates something in us that affects others. And as Paul says here, we are called to count others more significant than ourselves. Let that fall upon us in light of current events. It's part of why Jesus said, we're called to love our enemies. This is what true, genuine humility is. It it looks at others around us, not in this harsh, arrogant, judgmental way, but true, genuine humility says, I'm going to count you. You hear this? I'm going to count you as more significant than, than me and my needs and myself. Randolph Street, do you, do you see how God would be glorified if he would cultivate that kind of church here at Randolph Street? Yes, we have our differences. That, that's okay. These, these personal preferences exist among us. We don't want cookie-cutter Christians here at Randolph Street, but what we want to see as we embrace this truth we so deeply love is this profound humility that rises up in us where we look at our brothers and sisters and we look at those around us in our neighbors, in our workplaces, and on social media. We say, I'm going to count you. I'm going to count you better than myself. In other words, this humility is going to be ingrained in me. It's going to flow out of me. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to prefer you above me. That may not advance you in 21st century America, but it will glorify God. Look at what he says in verse number four, how this affects others. Let each of you not only look out to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So let's be clear here. Paul is not saying neglect your needs. I mean, he says that in verse number four. Let, you know, hey, you have issues, you have interests. You're going to look out for them. But he's placing a priority over our lives. Or as one scholar says, he's he's reprioritizing our lives and our minds as we think about others. Humility will express itself in looking out for others and seeking to meet their needs. One who counts others more significant than themselves does not deny their own needs but they are keenly aware of the needs of others that are around them. That's what true humility does. I recognize my issues, my needs, but I'm concerned about others and their lives and their needs. 
That is the way of Christ. As I've, like you, have watched newscasts over these past number of months, this political season we've been walking through, this is, is one of the reasons we put Philippians before us back in September or so, whenever it was. We felt that this book would be a helpful reminder to us as a church in the midst of all the potential divisions that exist within our society whether it be the issue of COVID and, and mask, or whether it be the political season that's been up on us, and now the fallout from the political season that each of us are seeing on our television screens and on social media, Philippians remind us, reminds us that our way is different than the ways of this world. Randolph Street, we want to glorify God. That's, that's our pursuit. That's what our, that's what our logo is all about, right? To the praise of his glory. That's our aim. That's our pursuit. Philippians reminds us of what that looks like, how we, lives, how we live lives to the glory of God. What we do not pursue is the interest of the world, the aims and the goals of the world. What we pursue is the interest of Christ in our lives. And the interest of Christ in our lives could not be clearer than Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In humility, we are called to count others more significant than ourselves and to look out for their interest. Now, to close our morning, look down at verse number five. This is tying it back now to what I began this sermon with in regard to the advent and ethical implications. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, he, wants, he wants you to have this attitude and this mindset in yourself, which we see in Christ. All right, so this is where the ethical realities of the Advent come pressing into us. All right, he's exhorted us, he's called us to this mindset to have this humble spirit toward others around us, and now he's going to take us out of that, and he's going to say, this is what you see in Christ. Look at verse number 6. Though he was in the form of God, he possessed the very nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't use it to his advantage. But instead, look at verse number seven, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He gave up these divine privileges and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And now verse eight, where he ties these words together, being found in human form, Christ humbled himself. The incarnation shapes our ethics. The incarnation shapes our church. We want a Christ-centered culture here at Randolph Street. Not a church defined by particular preferences, or political organizations. Not a church defined by, by particular practices. We want a church defined by Christ, a church, that, a church that is centered on the gospel, a church that understands and has experienced the grace of God toward us in Christ, and that we want that to move through us to affect others around us. Randolph Street, who knows what this week holds? 
and the following one. But be reminded of what God calls you to. God calls you in humility to be a servant, to consider others above yourself, to be a peacemaker, to love your enemies, to be gentle and kind. We do that by the power of God, and we do that for the glory of God. Amen? May God instill these truths into our lives as next week we move into this glorious hymn of Christ. Pray with me, if you would. Well, Father, as we hear what might be familiar truths this morning, O Spirit of God, if you would be pleased to take these truths and shape and form our lives for the glory of you, our God. As we probe our hearts and find those things which are earthly, demonic, unspiritual, maybe a heart that enjoys strife, contention, agitation, a heart that has been characterized by hateful speech or arrogance, maybe a heart that brings forth harsh, hurtful words to others. Father, this morning, help us to see that is not the way of Christ. That is not the kingdom of Christ. God, protect our church family from this. Please protect us from buying into what this world wants us to be, what the adversary longs for us to display. But may the men and women of Randolph Street be so captivated by your grace that we love displaying humility and gentleness and kindness. We love to see and identify others' needs around us so that we can serve them and care for them. We look with interest upon others, knowing how our words and our actions affect them. Let us be a people at Randolph Street that's characterized by men and women who are mature and edifying, who build up others around us in the faith. Father, that will only be true if your spirit does that work in us. So I plead with you this morning as one of, one of the elders here at Randolph Street that you would so form and shape us in this way, in this day, so that we might bring you much glory in this world of which we live in. These are humbling moments for each of us, Father. We probe our hearts and hear your word. Please help us now to respond rightly 
so that we indeed might be, might live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. We ask that in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, at home, please join me this morning as we recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the people of God reply, Amen. Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 and comes to the conclusion of that pleading with God to help us know the full depth and breadth and width of God's love in Christ Jesus. 
he makes this statement that has been such a critical, central truth in Randolph Street. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Might God work powerfully in us to embrace the truth that was given to us through Philippians 2, knowing that God can do those things in and through us for his glory.